Hello and welcome to another edition of Here's the Pitch, sponsored by Masses Restaurants in St. Louis, five locations. STLMasses.com is their website. Go there, check them out. You know about them. I want to get to my guest right away today. Very excited. James Andrew Miller is with me today. You know that name. Many oral history books, sports media aficionado. James, thank you so much. I appreciate you doing this. How are you today? Good, man. Thanks for having me. Um, so you wrote, uh, you've written the oral history of HBO, the oral history of ESPN, the oral history of SNL. Just first of all, just tell me about this, um, this genre that you've created. It's great. It's great for me. I have ADD, so I can just close the book, open it up, go wherever I want, 700 pages. You've got interviews with everybody. Tell me just how this uh, came about over the last 20 years, basically, these books. Um, I like to listen. I mean, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer and a reporter, and I've written a lot, and uh, I still write a lot. But in terms of the books, I think oral history is just a fascinating genre because there's such a level of immediacy between what people are saying in the book and the reader. The reader gets to really see the kind of unvarnished thoughts of people, and you get to see their different sensibilities, and you get to look and see how they think and it's just a lot different than if you're just putting a quote in the middle of a couple paragraphs of prose and analysis so um i think you know look i'm glad people like them and i think that the key is really making sure that you do a lot of reporting around it so you know sometimes people will have like a rashomon aspect and they may not remember things correctly or differently and so it's incumbent upon me from a journalistic point of view to check what they say out. Um, but, um, and then of course it's all putting it together. And so it's, you know, compelling narrative for the reader because where you place things and how you tell the story and how you trace the pedigree of these places is, uh, is equally as important. Well, I want to say I, I'm not a, I'm not much of a reader. I like to read books, but I, I don't go out searching them, but you and Will Leach are the only persons I've read multiple books of yours. So congratulations, you and Will Leach, St. Louis's own, of course. Oh, thank you. Well, that's good company. Will actually, Will's in the HBO book, and uh, he's a uh, he's he's incredibly productive man. That guy just cranks out stuff every week. A little too much energy for me, but that's fine. Um, this book is uh, called Tinderbox. It's the the most recent one you've written. It's about HBO. When I heard the topic, I'm like, HBO, what's there? You get in there and you're like, oh my goodness. And what I thought was great for me is, you know, I was a child of the 80s. I grew up when cable kind of started in my house around 1983. I was about six, seven years old. And I was like, look at this. Blame it on Rio. You know, you could see things you wouldn't see on Channel 5. Uh, Starman was the movie I wanted to make make sure I mentioned to you. Starman with Jeff Bridges was all I remember about HBO. Seemed like it was on every day, four times a day. He was an alien. And I've got gas is what he says. It was my favorite movie as a kid. But... HBO sort of grows up with me, and I didn't realize as I as I read through, man, HBO Sports was huge, and the boxing, and, and that that that's what my dad was showing me. We were watching Mike Tyson sort of grow up, and then the young comedian specials. Everybody thinks about Johnny Carson launching these people, but for me, I, I got launched on a lot of comedians on uh, on Rodney Dangerfield and these young comedian specials. It's amazing what they did in the in the 80s to to grow up and, and as a generation guy like me I grew up with it so I assumed it was fun to interview these what 757 people uh that you got to talk to um just give me the thought on HBO where where in the back of your mind you thought well this would be an interesting book 
Well, I mean, look, I think that you just referenced two aspects that I thought were really intriguing to talk, to write about early on in HBO's history, because if you're a comedian, for instance, you take Johnny Carson, it is the Holy Grail. I mean, it is the big deal, but you get four and a half minutes. That's it. And, you know, you have network censors going through and doing everything that they can to make sure that, you know, your routine meets their standards. HBO, they gave you an hour and you could say anything you want. In fact, George Carlin does a special on HBO about the seven words you can't say on television. And he tells and he says them all. So I think that that kind of freedom that they gave to comedians was really important. You couldn't find it elsewhere. And in the terms of your dad and boxing, look, the networks have given up on boxing. Remember, boxing used to be huge in the 40s and 50s and somewhat to some degree in the 60s. But then it just kind of, you know, they started putting it in the afternoon when they was a much smaller audience. HBO came along, said we're going to put it in prime time. They made huge, big deals with Mike Tyson and uh, unbelievable cast of characters that were there for all the Hagler Hearns and Sugar Ray and everything else. And so I think they really revitalized boxing and that helped as well with their subscriptions. There was, look, HBO went on the air in 1972 until, I mean, everybody thinks of HBO starting like with the Sopranos or, you know, Sex in the City. That wasn't until 1998, 1999. So I, one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was I wanted to show people just what a remarkable history HBO had before that. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. As a child, I grew up on that channel um, and, and not necessarily the news, which was one of my, I thought that was a funny show as a kid. And then, and then here comes Dream On, and then here comes Larry Sanders. So you spent a lot of time on Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling, uh, one of my all-time favorites, and I think and, you know, as he's passed, people start to talk more about how great he is. And I watch all these old interviews about just what a crazy mind he was, because after the Larry Sanders show, he sort of kind of became a recluse in, in his you know, ang- anger with Brad Gray. Um, but you do spend a lot of time on that. It's as groundbreaking as I guess I remember it being, right? I mean, as we look back 30 years now, that show really, I mean, there is really no office, right? The office uh, with um, Gervais, if there's no Larry Sanders, I would think, right? I mean, that's what we're talking about with that show and why it's I mean, so groundbreaking. The show, the show is, remark- is truly remarkable in so many ways, including, how about this for a judo move? HBO knew that it wasn't, they don't really care about ratings at HBO all all the time. What they did know, though, was everybody in Hollywood was watching The Larry Sanders Show. And so you had writers who were watching it and all of a sudden saying, wait a second, I can say this kind of stuff? I can do this kind of stuff? I mean, and so as a result, there was this gravitational pull over like key creative minds over to HBO because they saw Larry Sanders. And I think that was one of the one of the real legacies of the show, not to mention the fact that it was just downright brilliant. It's just so good. And uh, I was lucky to talk to Peter Tolan, who was one of the writers and actually ran the show for a while. And um, his stories are incredible. I could have done a whole book with Peter. Um, they're, they're really fascinating in the, in the, in the book. Yeah, and this book, again, The Tinderbox, HBO, you can find it, uh, I guess, wherever you get books. I, I have it on my Kindle. I'm reading it at, you know, on my phone. This is the way I like to read things these days. 
Uh, I always make Bob Costas has come on and been great to me. I'm a St. Louis guy, so I've gotten to know Joe Buck and Bob Costas. My Mount Rushmore when I was a child of broadcasters, the reason why I want to get into broadcasting, Bob always makes fun of me. I say, Bob, it was you. It was David Letterman, uh, Howard Stern, and Vince McMahon. He goes, well, that's a terrible uh, foursome. I got to say, I don't like being on that Mount Rushmore. But you talk to all of these guys along with Joe Buck. I mean, that's just amazing to me that you can pick up the phone. and, and how, So how hard was it to get Dave? Uh, and it, how fun was it to get Joe to talk about his moment? And, of course, Bob Costas with Vince McMahon. You got Vince McMahon to come. I mean, literally calling these people and getting these memories that haven't been really talked about, uh, you know, it kind of stirred it up again, uh, you know, this this past winter with Bob and Vince, of course. Well, you know, the thing with Brad is that, uh, I mean, look, I'm always incredibly grateful for anybody who says yes to me. And I think, you know, over the five books I've done, it's, you know, getting close to 3,000 interviews probably uh, if I had to count it up. But um, I think one of the things that, I try and do with these books is make them books of record. And so my value proposition to a Vince McMahon is look, this, you know, this big interview kind of happened with Armin Katayan at HBO. Let's, let's get your perspective on the record. Let's hear what you were thinking. Let's hear what you said. And same with Bob Costas with Vince. Um, I mean, Bob's got an incredible history and, uh, Boy, Joe's had a good week getting back into the Monday Night Football booth um, with a great new contract. I mean, they're all, look, they were all legends. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's part of the reason why HBO has such an amazing history is that people like that just come in and out of it. It's, it's unbelievable. I mean, you, you track the people that have come through HBO, had shows there. Bob has got a show there now. He came back. Um, it's really remarkable. Who, uh, you know, who said no? Who could you not get in your career? I'm, I'm talking about SNL. I think I noticed Steve Martin wasn't in the SNL book. That was interesting to me. Oh, yeah, he was. Oh, was oh, he? Yeah. Okay. So I'm, great. Who, who was someone you, for all of these books? Because the ESPN one, the SNL, even CAA book, um, and the HBO. Has there, been, has there been one person or maybe three where you're like, oh, I can't believe they, I couldn't just get them to say yes? Uh, Pope Francis. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Um, was he, did he have an HBO yeah, show? I don't know. Was it HBO? I'm trying to remember his HBO show, but I can't. Yeah. Uh, I'm not going to bare my soul here. So on the SNL book, Eddie Murphy, he told me, I was told it wasn't personal. He was mad at the show um, at the time. So Eddie Murphy said no. Meryl Streep on the CA book said no. Uh, one of her people said to me, she is totally alarmed by the fact that you get people to say so much. She doesn't want to put herself in that position. Um, and with HBO, Dennis Miller, um, who, by the way, I interviewed several times before, but I think that the circumstances, look, I don't take this stuff personally, but the circumstances surrounding Dennis's cancellation of a show, um, were difficult for him. And I think he just didn't want to go back and revisit that. And, you know, I respect that and uh, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, but, um, the good news is that, um, a lot of others said yes. Yeah. How long do you spend? I, I'm sure everybody gets a different amount of time because you want a lot of background, but what's a, a, a conversation with David Letterman, Vince McMahon, how long do those last? Who are the, maybe who are the shortest conversations? Who are the longest throughout your career of doing these books? 
I'm guessing John Skipper well, for know. ESPN would be, know. right? Sometimes I have to go back to people three or four times because in the process of reporting things, you know, something else comes out and then I have to go back to them. You know, um, I think that that becomes a little sensitive or I feel a little guilty bothering them again. But I do think, look, I try, these people are really busy. You know, you know this with your what you do. So you're trying to just, get in and get out. I'm not like, you know, I mean, sometimes, sometimes I'll evolve into longer conversations, but I always let the other person kind of set the, set the tone. And if they just, you know, if it's going to be very transactional, I'll do that. But uh, just want to make sure I don't make mistakes. You, you mentioned the Sopranos, which is, you know, obviously puts HBO in this new stratosphere. It's not TV, it's HBO. Um, I did not know, and I, maybe I just wasn't following enough, that James Gandolfini had all these issues. Was this a new revelation that comes out of your book? Because I, I never saw it. And secondly, I have to tell you, after going through all of that, I said, okay, I have to go back and watch. <laughs> I just after I had to see him do it is so good. It's still whole I mean, I haven't seen it in ten years, and I just went to season two. Um, two and three are probably my favorite. And I'm like, man, what a show. I mean, just everybody's so good on it. But was that all news? Was it? Was that all kind of new I mean, news? Look, I think that, I, I, no, I, I don't, I mean, some of it was, yes. Some of it was. Some of it was. And um, there were things that, yeah, I reported that hadn't been done before. We did a New York Magazine excerpt um, that got a lot of attention. Um, but, you know, there were other things that were well-documented. Um you know, when I do these books, there's always these people that are gone and you just feel so painful. Like, you know, with, um, with Saturday Night Live, obviously the idea of being able to interview Belushi or Gilda Radner would have been incredible. Uh, the idea of doing this HBO book without Gary Shanley and James Gandolfini just broke my heart. And I thought about them a lot. And, uh, you know, it's just, you want to be really responsible in terms of what you report and what you say, and you don't do it with respect. I don't, I'm not a flamethrower. I don't really burn bridges and just not after that kind of stuff. But um, there were some things about James's life during the show that had strong connective tissue to the show. I wasn't trying to you know, some of the difficulties that he went through, um, I wasn't trying to admonish or take away from his legacy at all. I just, in fact, just the opposite, because he went through so much and yet he, you know, I mean, he was incredible on the show. And, uh, and so I just wanted to, it's a careful balancing act, really. It's a great book. Again, I mean, we could spend all day talking about Sex in the City and Game of Thrones, but you should check it out. Um, I want to kind of talk some sports media with you. This has been a crazy couple weeks, great month. I cannot imagine Joe Buck not doing a World Series game. Like, in an instant, now he's no longer doing World Series. That is so weird to me that that is going to happen. Now, maybe I'm missing something, and but I don't see him on Fox, right? He's no longer with Fox. What I know that ESPN, you know, Tell me just your thoughts on just what's happened over the last month where Troy Aikman was sort of a big domino, and then here comes Joe Buck alongside to go to Monday Night Football. Um, and I'm just curious what you think. Who does base? I'm, I guess what I'm thinking is, like, how is Fox so okay with 
having the man that literally does all of their events on the primetime stage leave. And I know they're getting, you know, a game and a big 10 game here. And, but it just seemed like it was a very easy for him to get out of that contract. I just, your thoughts on just how quickly and swiftly this all happened and what, what Fox is thinking. Well, um, I mean, let's back up for a second and, uh, you know, it's, it's weird. I get asked a lot because does a football game carry a different rating if X is in the booth or Y is in the booth? And there's a lot of research to suggest it doesn't, but it also kind of informs the brand in a certain way, right? So a couple of years ago, you had Tony Romo sign a huge contract and with CBS, excuse me. And I think what happened was, you know, Al Michaels retiring or thinking about retirement and then not retiring. Started this cavalcade of like musical chairs. And so um, I'm like you, you know, the idea of Joe not covering a world series playing, you know, calling a world series. It's strange, right? It is strange, but I think he and Troy were ready for a change. Jimmy Pitard, ESPN, ready to reinvigorate Monday Night Football. And um, I think what you're seeing now is um, people are trying to make decisions. I mean, Fox, you asked me about Fox. Fox doesn't want to keep anybody if they don't want to be there. I mean, yes, you can hold people to contract, but at some point it becomes deleterious to your product as well. Um, particularly if it's going to be public. So I don't think Fox had a lot of choices, um, you know. And and again, when you're talking about huge amounts of money, um, there's there, there comes a point where people say, okay, no more. You can, yeah, I'm not going to compete with that. Yeah. No, and I see why ESPN does it. I mean, just seeing Joe and Troy in front of the Monday Night Football Shield uh, the picture they sent out yesterday on Twitter, it's like Monday Night Football is Monday Night Football again. And it I don't think it had anything to do with Steve Levy or, I mean, the games weren't great. But the fact now, and you've mentioned this before, that the NFL will look at that and say, well, we're going to give Monday Night Football some bigger games. But in my mind, I'm thinking for Fox, I know they've got Kevin Burkhart, they've got Gus Johnson, they've got a, a stable of people. But I, I just feel like when you've got this legendary voice who's done – your Super Bowls and your World Series, and he is gone like that. Because it happened like that, seemingly. I know the Troy stuff was talked about a lot this year, but Joe, it was like, okay, he's got one year left. Just thoughts on who would be their main voice. I mean, Kevin Burkhardt seemingly is the guy that would, would but could they possibly lure Al Michaels, or do they have some bigger plan? Just your thoughts on that. Well, I think Al is at the half-yard line right now with his deal with Amazon for Thursday nights. And uh, he'll be calling those games with Kirk Herbstreit, who's going to do double duty. Um, but I look, Kevin's Kevin Burkhardt is great, and that Fox Sunday afternoon window is one of the best windows for all of NFL, and they're going to continue to get great games. So you know, we'll we'll see. I mean, the dynamic in the booth will obviously be different, but I think they're they're rather confident about making sure that they continue to have a really good schedule. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in terms of who's going to be their primary booth right now, but 
Here's the other thing to keep in mind. There's not a lot of people who do this well. It sounds weird, but it just, there, there aren't. And that's one of the reasons why Tony gets his money and Jim Nance and Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth and, you know, Mike Tirico and everybody. I mean, if you do this job and you do it well, you're guaranteed employment. <laughs> yeah, no, it's weird to me. And you mentioned that. I always think it's really hard to find a great analyst. It seems like that's the harder find. So that's why Troy Aikman is such a big deal. But for me, I love Kevin Harlan. I love the CBS stable, Ian Eagle. I mean, they've just got so many guys. I, for me, I feel like I miss out. I know Kevin does a lot of, of radio uh, nationally and is great at it. I would love to see Kevin Harlan do some Super Bowls on TV. And maybe, I don't know if there's, you know, I'm, I'm just spitballing with you here if you think that's uh, interesting. But for me, if, if you're Fox, I feel like you have to literally pick a giant name Kevin's like a giant name to me. I don't know if that's how you think or if there's any thoughts on that, but that's me just spitballing here because that's what we do on a podcast, right? Um, you know, he he's a, I mean, he's the varsity. He's just not a household name like Al Michaels and Joe and Troy and Tony and, you know, Mike. Um, but you know what? That's not to say that he won't be. I mean, he's like just super talented. So, uh, I, I think it's going to be exciting for him. What do you think of these deals? Apple Plus does the MLB uh, Friday night thing. Um, Amazon football. We've got all these little side deals happening where you have to literally just start patching together where you're going to find your games. Now, I, I, I was interested about the Apple Plus Friday baseball because I, I guess in my mind I understand. Now if you get somebody to watch these games, they see what else you have on Apple Plus but I just don't see a lot of people saying, well, I can, I'll probably just skip that Cardinal game tonight. I don't need Apple Plus. I don't, it doesn't, because it's such a localized sport, do I need Apple Plus for those three Cardinal games? So I was, I'm a little, 100 million or 85 million, whatever it was, it was interesting to me because baseball is such a, is not, it's a localized sport. But tell me what your thoughts are just on if, if I'm in the same. I mean, look. $100 million for Apple, that's like, you know, if you clean the cushions in your couch next week and you find some quarters there. Five I, iPhones. They sell five iPhones and they've got it. You're right. I mean, you know, come on. It's like, I think it's uh, it's worth it for them because they will bring in some new eyeballs. I think it's great to have an attachment to that MLB brand for them. And, uh, you know, they're trying to do more with sports. So, um, I mean, look. The one thing that we we know, and, and this has been true for a long time, but people didn't realize it up until actually John Skipper at ESPN was the one who I think really went deep, deep with live sports rights for longer periods of time with lots of money and stuff is let's just pick a show right now. Like, you know, let's say you have Ted Lasso right now. Well, you don't know how many seasons that's going to go. You know, you, you just don't know. And how many episodes a season or whatever but you know that five years from now the Rose Bowl is going to be relevant you know that people are going to be playing baseball and watching baseball you know that the NFL is going to I mean I think sports rights are a very important constant foundation to network programming or streamer programming uh, I do want to just pivot to the Saturday Night Live book because I love Saturday Night Live. I love that book. Uh, I think it's when I first discovered you. 
Uh, you did two editions, right? You kind of finished off in 2001 and for had the 40th. To... Yeah, for the 40th anniversary. And gosh, now we're a stone's throw away from the 50th. So I would want to get your your first thoughts. I don't know if you're a you know TV critic. I, I just don't watch the show anymore. Um, and I, I, I'm, I, I, you know, I'm getting older. So I'm I actually, I'm as old as Saturday Night Live. Now I just thought about that. I'm 46. Um, I don't see much viral coming out of there. I have a 13 year old stepson. I'm like, do you watch Saturday Night Live? He's like, no. I said, do you see any clips on TikTok? He says, no. And I've, so I try to, in my head balance, I'm like, okay, I'm not their target probably anymore, but he is, and he's not seeing it. Just thoughts on what they're doing over there. Um, is it just one of those down years, down cast, they have to switch again? Yeah, actually, or... I think they're having a, um, I think they're, I think they're having a pretty good season and, uh, the show still makes a ton of money. I think the show is still relevant. I think it, it is in the zeitgeist. Um, you know, look, the history of Saturday Night Live is kind of like an EKG and there's been plenty of times where, you know, people have said to me, is Saturday Night Live dead? You know, it's the, um, I, I think that they've had a pretty good season. It's not always funny and not every sketch is funny, but, um, uh, I think it's been, I think it's been pretty good. Uh, you know, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to understand that a lot of people now watch Saturday Night Live throughout the week. You know, they watch it in clips or snippets or on Twitter, The you know, so, that's the way it is. I mean, you know, and uh, I think, look, sometimes it's host dependent, but I'd give it one more try, chance if I were you. Okay. This, this, the, I'll, I'll, yeah. If you say so, I, I trust your opinion. When you did the book, I know I've read that book uh, way back in the day. I picked it up again and uh, before this, but I was curious if you ever got to the, because my question always is, how do they decide the eight sketches? It to me, it's an amazing process that they go in on Monday. These guys are, you know, you've I've heard all. I mean, I've listened to every podcast. David Spade and Carvey have one now, and they, it's wonderful. Like you go in, and sometimes you don't even give your best stuff. And by Wednesday, they've got eight sketches. I never understood how they, how they, just in their minds figured out that's funny versus that not being funny, and how much funny probably landed on the floor that never got out. Right? I mean. When you did your book with well, them, a lot did... of times remember something though. It's not their decision; it's his decision. You know, dress rehearsals is at eight o'clock. Everybody goes into Lauren Michaels' office after that, and he puts on the board what's going to be in the show, and he puts the order in. Uh, it's not to say other people don't have input, but I think that you know, look, there have been some surprises through the years of people thought, "Oh my God, my sketch killed it." Dress. It's going to be on on the show, but Lauren has been doing this for 41 of these 46 years. And, uh, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, you know, I think that the staff trusts him. The writers certainly trust him. And uh, it, it makes the decision-making process really clear. Because I don't think the nature of comedy and the nature of what you're suggesting really, Brad, is that, it's very hard, you know, one person could think this is great and the other person could think this is not. So I think one of the things that works really well with Saturday Night Live is that Lauren is, you know, the chief. And at some point people give input and then at some point he, he gets to decide. Yeah. A couple more minutes because I wanted to mention this. I read your your portion about Adam Sandler. 
when that whole group, uh, Sandler and Spade, Spade stayed on one more year, but Farley and Chris Rock, they all kind of left at the same time. And I always thought that that was, it seemed like people danced around it, but in the book, it's pretty obvious. Don Olmeyer came over and said, I don't think these guys are funny. Was that the one time, I mean, obviously Lorne wasn't there for five years in the early 80s, but was that kind of that one time where, where Lorne really didn't have control of the show? And it seems like, I, I, it feels like Adam doesn't talk about it, and a lot of people ask that question, but it's pretty much laid out in the book. The guy from West Coast said, I don't like him. We're getting rid of these guys, right? I mean, that's pretty much it, right? I think Adam talks about it sometimes. And look, I think that if you were to look at Lauren's career at NBC, um, just in terms of his influence and, more importantly, his autonomy, uh, I look, I talked to Don Allmeyer about this. Um, may he rest in peace. Um, he was very much in Lauren's grill. And... I think Lauren was very dignified about it, but those weren't his favorite years. And uh, I think Lauren understood. I mean, Don didn't give him many choices on things like, you know, I mean, and there were significant people, Norm McDonald, Chris Rock, Adam Sandler. Yeah, it was, that's goes back to my uh, theory about, well, it's an obvious theory, which is, you know, comedy is, a very personal thing. And uh, Don never, Don never thought those guys were funny. And it also didn't help that Norm MacDonald went after OJ so bad. And OJ was a, was a friend of Don Olmeyer's. My favorite is Norm MacDonald. So I love, I love that. Um, lastly, you, you, you've done these books, but now you're doing these podcasts called Origins. Again, amazing stuff. It's an oral history of Curb Your, Enthusi- Curb Your Enthusiasm, but now you hear Larry David and Susie Essman, and it's a wonderful show. Tell me what it was like to spend time with, uh, with Larry. Uh, you did it, obviously, for the HBO book, but you did it for Origins. Um, is he a guy that you can kind of call up on the phone now? Because, again, these are the kind of people... I would love to be able to text and say, Larry, can you give me a couple of minutes? What's it like having time with him? I mean, look, there's only one Larry David. It's, that's a very obvious statement, but I think that um, uh, the thing that I like about Larry is that he, he's never pretending to be somebody else. Uh, I mean, in real life, you know, he, he really, he's so genuine. And I think that the other thing that we have to keep in mind is look, Obviously, Seinfeld and Curb are two of the greatest comedy shows ever done for television. But he was on Saturday Night Live and never got a sketch on the air. You know, I mean, he was, uh, you know, a lot of comedy stores, comedy places didn't even want him sometimes. So it wasn't like, you know, I mean, he he earned this. And uh, I think I'm just so happy for him that he has gotten to this point. And by the way. You think about HBO and Curb, what other show would let him come back after, you know, seven, eight, nine years? I mean, it's incredible. He comes and goes as he pleases. And I think that's one of the things that makes HBO so special. Yeah. And he basically has created the Larry David moments where uncomfortable moments. Now you just go, this is a Larry David moment. Um, you know, I love the story. The best story is when he, he quit from SNL. And then just showed back up on Monday and said, no, I, I didn't quit. And Which they used for a Seinfeld episode right. with George. So just for me, how long does it take from start to finish, concept in your mind, the HBO book, till last draft? I mean, how that seems like an undertaking. Over three years. Yeah. yeah. Any other oral history books in your head coming up? Any thoughts? Um, 
not right now. I'm, I'm doing a lot of origins and uh, I'm going to be doing a couple documentaries. And um, right now I just, yeah, I got to take it. I got to get ready for the paperback of Tinderbox, but um, uh, just going to, I'm trying not to think about the next one yet. And so origins is great. You've done sex in the city, curb ESPN, SNL, any, any, can you give a, can you give us a little hint at what's next in origins? It's so, it's so good. Actually, uh, thank you so much. I'm actually doing um, the next origins chapter is on HBO because I there's some things that aren't weren't in the book, and I want people to be able to hear these people's voices. So that'll be coming out, um, you know, within several weeks. I can't wait, uh, Jim. I really appreciate this again. I love your books. It made me go back and read. And for people at home, just just search them on Amazon. You can just have it on your phone like that. It's just like reading short articles. You can pick it up whenever. Um, you know, we had a half hour today. I thank you. I know we've tried to do this for a while. I really hope we can, you know, catch up again, uh, months down the line and, and continue our conversations. So there's so much, look at, I mean, look at this. There's just so much here, Jim, that I have to get through. It's, it's numbered and it's, it's just scribblings of a madman, but I appreciate your time and, uh, Look forward to Monday Night Football. I mean, the da, 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 actually means something again. So thank you so much. You All right. That's well, thanks for having me, and thanks for your patience, man. Yeah. It was great. Thank that's you so much. James Andrew Miller here on Here's the Pitch. I'm your YouTube friend, Brad, and we'll see you next time.